Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I'm William Friedman, and today we're studying Ketubot 31. The third chapter of Ketubot is ostensibly about the penalties paid by the seducer and abductor. The opening Mishnayot of this chapter, however, raise a larger theoretical question. What if someone violates two prohibitions simultaneously in one act, one prohibition incurring a severe bodily penalty, and the other a monetary fine. Does the bodily penalty supersede the monetary fine? As we will see, the Mishnah rules that kol mamon. If an act simultaneously incurs a monetary fine and the death penalty, the fine is waived in the face of the greater punishment. The opening Mishnah of our chapter, however, ruled that if the punishment is karet, which is some kind of divine excision, maybe early death, one would nevertheless still have to pay the fine. Yesterday's daf, however, told us that Rebbe Nechunya HaKana disagreed with that ruling. He thought that karet is a stringent enough punishment that it, too, would render paying a monetary fine superfluous. Even though the Mishnah implicitly rejects his position by not citing it, the Gemara takes it seriously and tries to figure out whether he thinks that karet always rules out monetary fines or if there are exceptions. That's where our daf picks up, right at the top of 31a. First, I'll explain the sugya, and then I'll offer my understanding of the larger issues at play. I always welcome your comments, which you can post on the Daily Daf Differently site at jcastnetwork.org. Gufa. Amar of Chista. Moda Rebbe Nechunya ben Hakana, begonev chabo shel chaveirova achalo. Shehu chayav? Shekavar nitchayev bigneva? Kodem shiyavo lidei isor chelev. Gufa, that's a technical term. It means the Talmud is going to pick up on something already mentioned previously and then discuss it on its own terms. Some scholars actually think that this term refers to the original sugya around which the larger sugya was created. In any case, Gufa. Rav Chista said, Rabbi Nechunya HaKaneh would agree in the case where somebody steals fats from, forbidden fats from his friend and then eats them, that he is obligated. And here obligated means he's obligated in the monetary fine for the theft. That he's already become obligated in the theft before he came to the prohibition of forbidden fats. So, <clears throat> Rav Chista here claims that Rabbi Nechunya HaKana limits the exemption from monetary fines in the face of karet to cases where they result from a single act. Here, however, we have two distinct acts. First, someone steals fats that are forbidden to eat under penalty of karet. But you could still use them to make candles or sell them to a non-Jew or whatever. So, as in all cases of theft, the thief is liable for paying back double the value of the fats. Later, however, the thief eats the forbidden fat, and that incurs karet. Even though the thief did two forbidden acts with one object, stealing and eating the fat, 
Since they were separate acts, Rav Chista thinks that even Rabbi Nechunya HaKana would agree that the thief must pay, even though she's going to be subsequently punished by Karait. Rav Chista seems to want to limit the scope of Rabbi Nechunya HaKana's exemption from monetary penalties in the face of the larger punishment of Karait. This makes a lot of sense in the case of theft, since part of the point of repayment is restitution for the loss. Why should the person whose fats were stolen have to suffer the loss just because the thief is going to receive karet? The Gemara continues, however, by positing a, contra- a possible contradiction between, the, between this ruling of Rav Chista and one of Rebbe Avin. Lema, pliga de Rebbe Avin, de Amar Rebbe Avin, hazorik chetz mitchilat arba lasof arba, vikara shirayim bahalichato, patur. So Lema, let's say, and you should know that Lema always introduces, almost always, with the Gemara you can never say always, but Lema almost always introduces a suggestion that will then be rejected. But let's at least understand the supposed contradiction first. So the background that you need to know is that it's biblically forbidden on Shabbat to transfer an object a significant distance in the public domain. That's more than four amot. That's about six feet. If someone does move an object that far on purpose, but without being warned by witnesses that what they're about to do is a biblical violation, then they get karet. So what did Rebbe Avin say? He said, someone who throws, and here throws must mean shoots, someone who shoots an arrow from the beginning of Foramot to the end of Foramot, and tears some fabric in the process of its going, he is patur, i.e. he is patur from paying for the fabric because he gets the biblical violation of kar- but he gets the biblical penalty of karet for having shot the arrow at least Foramot, if not more. So why is it that he's patur? Here's the other thing you need to know. That in fact, the punishment for having carried an object on Shabbat in the public domain at least six feet only happens when you get to the end of that six feet or more and then you put it down. So why should the person be exempt from the monetary fine for tearing these fabrics given that he didn't incur the penalty of karet until the arrow actually landed, which was after the tearing? So Rabbi Avin explains that the reason is akirat sore hanachahi, that the uprooting, right, the initial shooting of the arrow, is necessary for it having then landed later on after six feet. So even though technically he only becomes liable for karet at the end of six feet, nevertheless, the shooting was an integral part of that. And so the shooting is actually when that started, and anything that happened in the course of the shooting of the arrow and it moving before it landing, including causing monetary damage, that's all part of a biblical violation which incurs karet. So the Gemara then compares this to the case of Rav Chista. And it says, that the act of consumption of the fats was dependent on the person having picked up the fats. The picking up of the fats is what caused the theft to happen. Picking up an object that does not belong to you, raising it up, that is what triggers a theft violation. So that was necessary in order to get the fats to his mouth so he could eat them. 
And so shouldn't Rav Chista have ruled like Rabbi Avin that the person is patur from having paid for the theft of the fats since the initial act, which incurred the theft, was also an essential part of the eating, which was the karet violation. Okay. We now hopefully understand what the um, comparison is and the contradiction between Rav Chista and Rabbi Avin. The Gemara then, of course, resolves this. And it does so in two ways, by offering two ways of understanding how to distinguish between the two cases. So the Gemara says, Hachi hashta. That is the case here, or now. Hatam, hatam there, referring to the case of Rabbi Avin and the arrow. Ef akira. It is impossible for the arrow to have landed without having been picked up and shot. Hacha, however, hacha here in the case of the fats, efshla achila below hagbaha. It actually was possible to eat without having lifted them. Now you might ask, how is that possible? How could I eat the fats without lifting them to my mouth? That if one wished, one could have gotten on one's belly and consumed the fats. In other words, one could at least theoretically distinguish between the act that incurred the theft, the picking it up, and the act that incurred the karet, the actual consumption, since one could, in theory, consume it without having picked it up. That is not true of the arrow. The arrow had to have been shot, had to have been uprooted in order to incur the biblical penalty of karet, and therefore anything that happened in the interim between the shooting and the landing, that is going to be patur. The Gemara offers a second possible distinction. Inami, alternatively, hatam, in the case of the arrow, i ba'ila ahadura lo if one wished to retract, to return it, i.e. to stop, lo it's not possible, lo yachol, it is impossible to take it back. Hacha, however, in the case of the fats, matzei mahadarla, it is in fact possible to retract. Why is that? Once I shoot the arrow, basically I'm in a deterministic system. The arrow has been shot, it's going to take its path, if its path takes it through the fabrics, I can't stop it, and certainly I can't stop its landing. The Shabbos violation is essentially complete as soon as I have shot the arrow initially. But when it comes to the fats, even if I pick them up, there is absolutely nothing deterministic about my ultimately consuming it. So therefore, it should not actually be comparable because I could just stop. I don't need to eat the fats once I have picked them up. It's yet another way of distinguishing between the act of shooting the arrow and the act of consuming the fats. One possibility, let's review, the first one was whether the initial act was truly indispensable to the outcome, and the second was whether the outcome was an inevitable result of the initial act. Those are quite similar, and so the Gemara needs to figure out, hold on a second, what exactly is going to be the practical difference? Can I come up with a case in which Holding one position would result in outcome in in outcome A, and holding the other position would would result in outcome not A. So the Gemara asks, "My ikabein highly shana la highly shana." What in fact is the practical difference between these two languages, these two ways of expressing the difference between those cases? Ikabein in fact, there is a difference, namely, 
Hamaavir Sakin Birshutarabim Vikarashirain Bahalikhatao. Someone who is carrying a knife in violation of Shabbat in the public domain and while carrying the knife accidentally tears some fabrics. Right? So I'm walking through a public domain, I've picked up a knife, I'm violating Shabbat, at least once I put it down I'm violating Shabbat, but I've started the Shabbat violation and I tear some fabric in the interim. So hopefully you can see where this is going. According to the idea that you said that it's impossible to put it down without having first picked it up, in other words, if I view it as, remember, option A, if I view it as the initial act is indispensable to the outcome, then in fact, that should apply to the knife case also. I picked up the knife. I started the Shabbos violation. I'm walking around. I tore some fabric. Therefore, I should be patur from repaying it. I'm exempt from repaying it because I'm engaged in a larger violation, that of Shabbat, which will incur karet in this case. However, if you were talk, if you think the most essential thing is inevitability, right? Remember the arrow. I shoot it. It's inevitable. It's deterministic. What's going to happen? Hacha. In the case of the carrying the knife, right? Just like the fats, essentially, just because I pick up a knife and start walking on Shabbat through the public domain with it, that doesn't mean that inevitably I'm going to tear fabrics, right? I might be quite careful. So. If it's about inevitability, it's not inevitable. But if it's about, did I start a violation with the initial act, then yes, indeed, I did start a violation with the initial act. So that's the way the Gemara distinguishes between the two cases. I think this last example really illuminates what's at stake in this debate. One could read this sugya as merely a theoretical conversation about how the legal system determines the scope of an action. But I actually think it's more productive to think about the consequences of these two choices. Is someone engaged in a serious violation, in this case of Shabbat, still expected to take care to avoid damaging other people's property? We could transpose this to our contemporary American context by asking whether someone committing a felony should be punished for any misdemeanors committed along the way. You can probably come up with even more examples on your own. And just as this sugya leaves this question open, I, too, leave it to you to consider the pros and cons of each side. I look forward to continuing learning with you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.